Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to come together and share with each other and focus our attentions and mind on you that we can put aside the, the cares and the busyness of the world and, and focus the attentions of our hearts on our true love, you and your Son. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in our quarterly People on the Move, the Book of Numbers, and the title for this week's lesson is Trumpets, Blood, Cloud, and Fire. And when you hear the title for this week's, this, this week's lesson, when you looked at that, what, what came to mind? Christianity. Churches. Christianity, churches, other thoughts? Anything particular come to mind? Fear. 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 Well, let's see if we can't flush out some of these symbols. What came to my mind is symbolic language, and what does it mean? At first thing I said, what does it mean? What does it mean? So, in Sabbath lesson, somebody read the first paragraph for us, begins at the, at the last Passover. At the last Passover that Jesus ate with his disciples, he instituted the Lord's Supper. Taking some of the same elements of the Passover meal, Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body. And of the cup he said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And Paul wrote, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. What was Jesus instituting at this event? Was he instituting an, another, a reality or replacing one symbolic service with another symbolic service? Okay, she says that's been a hot question for centuries because there's a large organization centered in Rome that teaches that this was a reality he was instituting. Uh, transubstantiation, that when you drink the blood, right after it passes the, the palate uh, on its way down to the esophagus, before it hits the belly, it turns to, to real blood. And the wafer, after it passes the palate on its way to, through the esophagus, before it hits the belly, turns to actual human flesh of Jesus Christ. People believe that? That's what the Catholic Church teaches, transubstantiation. Hundreds of millions believe that. Yes. It's the priest that has the power to do this. Yes, the priest has... He incenses, in a sense, he sacrifices, he creates God, he sacrifices God. So do we believe that Christ is instituting a reality, or is he replacing one symbolic service with another symbolic service? What is the purpose of the two services? What was the Passover symbolic service designed to teach, and what is the communion service designed to teach? Is there, is there a difference? Deliverance. Deliverance, which one? Okay, both of them teach deliverance. The Passover pointed forward to Christ's coming. The communion pointed back to what he achieved and to what he is doing in the present, yes? Okay, so... When they put the blood on the doorpost at the Passover, what was that symbolic? What, what was the lesson that we were to learn? Blood on the doorpost at the Passover. What, what is being taught there? The trust in the Lord. And the angel would strike. Okay, on the most superficial level, the most rudimentary level on the night that it happened, blood on the door is going to protect me from a destroying angel. Is that all it was supposed to mean, or is it supposed to have a deeper meaning? What does the blood symbolize? 
Well, the blood came from the sacrificial lamb, or animal, and that animal represents who? Christ. So the blood is symbolic of the blood of Christ being applied to the doorpost. What do you think that represents? What I heard somebody? The heart. Okay, so the blood represents the life of Christ being applied to the heart. Is this what was being taught? When, when Christ said in the New Testament service, the wine, what does it represent, symbolic of? The blood of, which symbolically means the life of Christ. And where is he telling us it needs to go? Inside us, as a physical substance to give us physical nurturance? Or is it where to take the life of Christ into the heart? So both of them have symbolic blood teaching symbolic application to the heart. In the Passover service, they ate the meat of the animal the night of. What did it represent? The body of Christ. So was it actually his physical body that was being represented? We were to be cannibals, or is it his body represents what? His life, his achievements, what he worked out on earth through his path and life on earth, his perfect character that he developed on earth, yeah? And they partook of it. And then the, the wafer or the, or the unleavened bread in the, in the communion service is symbolic of his body taking in, partaking of Christ again. Both are the same, yes? Teaching the same things. Passover preceded their departure from Egypt, didn't it? The first, not the commemorative one they did every year, but the very first one preceded their departure from Egypt. Does communion precede our departure from sin? We don't think of it that way. We don't use it that way. Does it? The literal meaning, what does it mean? Can you depart from sin if you don't partake of Christ? Do you have to partake of Christ before you can depart from sin? Yes. Yeah. He is the freedom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We can't get from free from sin unless we partake of Christ, can we? So it's by partaking of Christ that we experience reconciliation with God, freedom from sin, restoration, the whole, all the blessings come by partaking of Christ. We can't go and, and be one with God and then partake of Christ, can we? No. So is it being taught the same thing, that, that the, the, uh, the communion in its literal application to the heart, partaking of Christ, precedes our freedom from the life of sin? Yes? I'm thinking of... Uh New believers, though, we, we normally put the symbolism of uh, baptism in that place. I mean, I, I can't think of a scripture that says you need to take communion first. I see. We're talk, you're talking now the actual physical um, ritual we go through. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about what it actually means that we have to partake of Christ into our heart. So you can actually go through the physical ritual and never partake of Christ in the heart. Right. You can go through the... Baptism too. Exactly. But what is it that brings us to the point that we're willing to go through baptism, which is only a symbol of death to self? Isn't it partaking of Christ in the heart? Can you actually go through the death to self and baptism and renewal if you haven't partaken of Christ? You can? The actual death to self and renewal of heart? No, we can go through the actual... The motions, yeah, the physical, the physical acts, but, but the heart can't be renewed. We can't die to sin and self. This, it can no longer be um, Christ. It can't be Christ living in me if I haven't partaken of Christ, can it? So it seems to me partaking of Christ into the heart is the first element to all of it. 
Did I miss something? Well, further lessons on this symbolic stuff. Satan is the ruler of the world, just like Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt. Okay, And in the ancient world, Pharaoh had more truth about God revealed to him than any other earthly ruler, yet hardened his heart against it and held the people as tightly as he could into bondage. Who of the created beings of God had more truth about God revealed to them? Lucifer. Lucifer. Yet he hardened his heart against it and tries to hold God's people in the bondage of sin. You see, the parallels are really, really nicely done in this lesson for us. And as Pharaoh enslaved the the Hebrew Satan enslaves man, as God sent Moses to deliver the people of, of Israel from Pharaoh and slavery, God sent Jesus to deliver mankind from Satan and sin. You see the parallels. The lesson being taught. All right, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. Somebody read, this was the first anniversary, that paragraph. And we're going to come back and look at these parallels some more. There's a lot more parallels to look at, but we're going to come and get those in a minute. But somebody read that first paragraph there. This was the first anniversary of the amazing night in Egypt when the Lord's angels stood the firstborn of the Egyptians, but passed over, hence the name Passover, the dwellings of Israel marked by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Now, in what was to be an animal ritual... They were to remember the night of their special deliverance from Egypt and the salvation that God had brought in their behalf. Who is the angel of the Lord? Jesus. I heard somebody say Jesus. Yes. If you're in confusion, there's lots of texts. We went through this before. Just tell you the, the easiest one to, to confirm that is, is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where Moses is uh, talking to God at the burning bush. And it says in verse 2, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. So the angel of the Lord, within the flames, within the bush. And then it goes on to say, um, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. The place where you stand is holy. I am the God of, the, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we find here, the angel of the Lord's within the bush, and it's God who's speaking to him from within the bush. And then if you put that together with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, that the rock who led the children of Israel and that from which they drank in the, in the wilderness was Jesus Christ. And we can tie together that the member of the Godhead through which uh, uh, the Godhead was working in Old Testament times was Jesus Christ. I wonder why they don't just say Egypt when, the, when Jesus slew and there's many, many more. If you have a, a, computer, a computer, Bible and computer, just type in the phrase, angel of the Lord. And you will find a whole long list and go read them. And you will find over and over again that in the context, as you're reading it, the angel of the Lord turns out to be the Lord. Turns out to be Christ. <clears throat> angel is just messenger anyway. Messenger of the Lord is what the, the word can, often means, yes. It can also, I think, mean seraph and cherubim and so forth. But it means messenger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, those can be messengers. If you actually look at Exodus 12... 12 and 13 and verse 29, this is when the angel of the Lord, according to our um, quarterly, came and slew the firstborn of Egypt. And I think we should read that because I'm wondering if anybody's version actually says the angel of the Lord. Did the King James say angel of the Lord? I am the Lord. This is NIV. Let's see if it says angel of the Lord because all the other versions says God does it. It says, on the same night I I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn both men 
and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. When I read this, I don't hear angel of the Lord in this. I just hear the Lord. Does anybody's version actually have angel of the Lord? I've always thought of it, it was the angel of the Lord. Haven't you said that many times? The angel of the Lord went through the camp that night. And the quarterly has angel of the Lord, but when I read the text in Scripture, it just says the Lord did it. Yes? Does the old King James have the angel of the Lord? Does anybody have the King James? The new King James uses the Lord. The new King James is the Lord. The original King James 1611 does not use the angel of the Lord either, according to Wendell over there. Does anybody have any difficulty with God himself coming down and striking down the firstborn of Egypt, animals and people? Anybody have a problem with that? Anybody uncomfortable with that? Why? What are we uncomfortable about? He says that's not what we've been learning. Is it not? When have I ever said in here God did not use his power to put some of his children to rest in the grave? Or have I said God has done that? He has done that. Yeah, he's done that. Now, I know some people get uncomfortable with that, but why? It seems um, unfair. Like, you talk about the um, man in the dungeon and his firstborn. It's kind of, it's kind of like government. A president or emperor who makes all these decisions and says, we the nation believe this, and it's like, don't help me into we. Because we may not agree with what they do. And so Pharaoh hardened his heart. But everybody kind of took the fall of first, firstborns. Mm. And the innocent firstborns. Why the innocent firstborns? Mm. It's inconsistent with what you're teaching about the love of God in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. The problem is a misconception that we have about, uh, about death itself. Thank you. Our version of death, which to us is permanent. I mean, the humans, some, my father died three months ago. He's gone. He's not coming back until he's resurrected. God's version of death is very different than ours. In fact, um, didn't Christ talk about you will never die? Yes. Those who have the Son have life. Those not the Son remain in death. He's talking about the second death. Well, he, you know, he threw something out here, the second death. When God talks about sin... In the day you eat, you will surely die. What was he talking about? Sleeping in the grave for a while? So, is there a difference between the eternal demise of the wicked in the end and all those who currently sleep in the grave? Whether righteous or wicked. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one, Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy body, but the one who can destroy body and soul, Greek psyche, in hell. Yes. If you died at the first death, you were not in Christ, wouldn't that be essentially the second death? And then you would be arrayed and then go back to sleep. See, that, that's the assumption that if you die the first death now, that your opportunity is over. That, that God sealed your fate. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Everybody's going to be resurrected. And what kind of condition will you come out of the grave in? So, if you have a heart that loves God, what will your heart be when you come out of the grave? If you have a heart that hates God, what will your heart be when you come out of the grave? 
And then when you come out of the grave, is it instant determination of final destiny? Or is there a period of time that happens at that resurrection? Second resurrection, there's time. Yes. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and the gates of the new Jerusalem are open. And then the wicked dead are raised. Now think of the meaning of this. Here we are, the righteous in the city. The wicked are raised, the gates are open. Why don't they come in? Did God, is God determining the ultimate outcome, or do those who oppose God join themselves with satanic forces to attack the city? And there's a period of time of preparation of armaments and war. So you're saying that they could go in at that point? I'm saying the only reason they don't go in is based on their own free will choice, not some preclusion from God. God doesn't, God doesn't keep them out. But they won't come in. And you want to know why they won't come in? This should make it very clear to you. Imagine you have a loved one that a few years back was inside the Branch Davidian compound at Waco. Everybody remember that? And the FBI surrounded the place. Remember that? And you go to, to, to talk to your loved one on the inside, and your loved one is pleading with you. It's, it's salvation in here. This is the way of the Lord. Come in. Come in. It's wonderful in here. How many of you are going in? Why won't you go in? They're pleading for you to come in. That's how those on the outside will see us on the inside. Those outside the city will look at us on the inside of the city like we look at those people in Waco. They will think we're deluded and brainwashed, and they won't come in. Yes? I think the problem is that after uh, the first death, there's no more chance for uh, reconciliation or, or, or repentance and a change of heart. Therefore, in a sense... Why? why well, I don't think the Bible says that. Why is there no more chance? The point I'm making is... No, the point I'm making is the people who come up in the first resurrection are those whose hearts are capable of being moved towards God. Those who come up in the second resurrection are those whose hearts are so settled into the lie about God that no amount of truth will have an impact on them. Those who come up in the first resurrection have a heart open to truth and will follow the Spirit. We've, we've read in, in uh, Romans chapter 2 that those who do not know the law or have heard the law, but by nature do the things contained in the law, a law unto themselves, their conscience bearing witness. Have those heard the message of Jesus Christ yet? No, but they are considered God's people, according to Paul, their conscience bear witness to that fact. So they will come up in the first resurrection, even though they may have never taken a public stand for Christ. Like the thief on the cross, they may have just taken the... Some of them may have never taken a stance. I mean, they may have just taken that first step to, to embracing truth and loving truth and, and aligning themselves with God's government. You know, is it Zechariah that says that uh, some will come to Christ and, and ask what those scars in his hands are? And he will say, I received these at the house of my friend. Why will there be people in heaven asking him about what are the scars? Because they had never heard of it yet. And so the point is, those whose hearts are open to truth and love, will come up in, a, in the resurrection of the righteous. Those whose hearts are closed to truth and love will not come up in the resurrection of the righteous. And the reason they come up at all is so those who are in the city can see the reason those who are out of the city are not kept out by God. They're kept out by themselves. And so what happens in the first death here is ultimately not determining the ultimate outcome. The ultimate outcome is determined by each person and how they respond to truth and love. Tim, some yes. of these might have been babies or young children that were the firstborn. Yes. So, some of them could have been a lot of those firstborn that were slain in Egypt. Does it mean that because you were slain in Egypt, you'll be eternally lost? No. 
So, so the sum of the firstborn might be resurrected in the resurrection of life. Same thing with the flood. Same thing with the flood. So let's let's, get, let's, let's keep these thoughts in mind. These are really good thoughts. Um, it says in the text. Let's look at the text. What was actually happening? Because the text in, that we just read gives insight into what God was doing. Was God bringing judgment on people? Was He bringing judgment on the firstborn of Egypt? No. It's not what it says. It says. I will strike down the firstborn of Egypt, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Judgment is not coming to the firstborn. Judgment is coming to the gods of Egypt. Yes? The firstborn, each was dedicated as priests to the gods of Egypt. How does this bring down the gods or bring judgment to gods of Egypt? What do the Egyptians worship? <laughs> they worshiped animals. And they worship chimeras. Chimeras are hybrids of animal people hybrids, like Anubis, which had a human body but the head of a jackal. That was a, hy- a hybrid called a chimera. They worship these hybrids. Anubis was the god of the underworld. He was the god who controlled death. So what was God doing by striking down the firstborn of animals as well as people? What was he doing? The gods, all their gods, had no power. The god of the frogs, when all the frog, firstborn of all the frogs died, okay, has no power. That they worship the bull. You know that one of the gods they worship was the bull. And when the firstborn of all the bulls die and all the cows die, what what are they learning? That this god has no power. And when the firstborn of the people die, what are they learning? That Anubis has no power. Now, how is this bringing judgment on the gods? You see, one way to view this is God sits in heaven and he meets out judgment. He is now taking anger and wrath out, punitive, retributive justice upon the gods of Egypt. Well, were the gods of Egypt alive? Were they real? No. So can those inanimate stone objects be judged and punished? No. No. He is not punishing the gods of Egypt. He is giving judgment or judging the gods of Egypt. What does this mean? He is providing evidence to the human beings living in the time that shows that the gods of Egypt are powerless and impotent and don't really exist. And the God of Israel is the true God, giving them the power to make a judgment to reject the lies in the gods of Egypt and side with the God of Israel. This is what he is doing. And these plagues were a crescendoing process to open the minds, to give evidence so the people could break free from the darkness and make a right judgment that the gods of Egypt are false gods. And it worked. Some of them actually... In the mixed multitude, some of the people of Egypt left with the people of Israel. Some of the people of Egypt put blood on their doorposts because they... They, they, for the first nine plagues, realized and already made a judgment. And this is how God works. He's been working through the whole process. The battle between Christ and Satan is a battle for the mind. For though we live in the world, we do not wage wars the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly weapons. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. God has been working. See, Satan is working to, to fill our minds with darkness. Darkness covers the people. Gross darkness the people. But Jesus is the light which lightens all men. But the, the, the light is shown in the darkness. But the darkness 
has not understood it. The darkness has not understood the light. And so we see the same thing. And then you read in Daniel chapter 7 when it says that the horn waged against the, uh, the saints and was making uh, headway against them until the Ancient of Days came it depends on which version you read the NIV says and pronounce judgment in their favor no the King James says until the ancient of days came and took a seat and judgment was given to the saints in other words until we had truth our minds were enlightened by God just like what we're describing here in, in Egypt and that we now are, are provided with the weapons of God the divine weapons to demolish the lies of Satan so that we can judge rightly that the little horn powers to present presentations of God are wrong and we can break free this is what's going on it's the battle for the mind of God's people and God is providing evidence so that the, the human beings can set, be set free from these, this idol worship and these false constructs of God. Let's go into Monday's lesson. Third paragraph, the Lord is leading. It says, the Lord's leading of Israel by means of the visible cloud was not always through easily traveled highways. Jeremiah records that he led them through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and, and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And, and I wanted to share this, this idea with you, that, that he led them. Why did he lead them through these difficult places? He wanted them to rely on him. He wanted them to rely on him? He wanted them to trust him? Other thoughts? Develop their character. Develop their character. Now, now notice, did, did another Bible passage jump into your mind when we read this one out of Jeremiah? Jesus was led to the wilderness. That one, absolutely, absolutely, right on, right on the mark. And how about this phrase when he, uh, in, in this passage when it said that uh, he led them through the land of drought and of the shadow of death? 23rd Psalm. Now, let's look, take a look at the 23rd Psalm. Because I, I think a lot of people you know, believe the Hollywood version of the 23rd Psalm, that we read that as, we're, as the guy being executed is taken into the gas chamber, and this is uh, about protection from physical death. But let's, let's take our, our, our roll through the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures and lead us beside the still waters. I mean, this is initial promise that the Lord is the one who is overseeing us, providing for our welfare, providing our food, providing our water. Uh, we're going to be in safe places. We don't have to worry. He's there taking care for us. He's going to provide our needs. And the next verse, here's where it's really starting to open up what the Lord's focus is. He restores my wealth and my pro- property rights. Is that what he's restoring? No, notice what the Lord is focusing on. He restores my soul. See, he wants to heal the inner man. He wants to recreate the heart, new heart and right spirit. He wants to free the mind from the damages of sin. He restores the soul. Notice, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. So Christ is the one leading. And where is he leading? He's leading in what kind of paths? And, and, and for the purpose of, for his glory, see, see, if you have cancer and you're dying of cancer, it's terminal, it's all over your body, and a doctor comes to you and gives you a pill, you take it and tomorrow you're cancer free, it cured you. Do you become a powerful witness for that doctor and his remedy? Do you get to take any credit to yourself? Do you say, look how, how wonderful I am? No, that's the life of a sinner. We get to take no credit, we don't earn anything. But as we partake of Christ and we experience transformation and regeneration, does God's name get magnified and glorified? 
You see? So for his namesake, for his glory's sake, he's leading us in these paths so that his methods can be... But notice, he's leading me. So, so Christ is one. We're following him. And where does this path take us? Notice where the path takes us. Next thing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff cover me. Now, is this the valley of death? No, it's not the valley of death. Recognize this. He is not leading us into the valley of death. He's leading us into the valley of the shadow of death. This is the place in each one of our lives where it feels like we're going to die. This is the place in each one of our lives where we come face to face with the old man, where we wrestle, where the, the, the Jacob's night of trouble, where he wrestled with Christ all night long until he gained the victory over self. This is the place where, where we are confronted, where, where emotions hurt so bad that, that we're tempted to turn back. And in my practice, I have many patients who are working with Christ, and Christ brings them to this point again and again and again. But it feels so bad. It feels so desperate. It feels so lonely. It feels so empty. It feels so overwhelming that they turn back to the old way of alcohol, drugs, or whatever it was they used to comfort themselves with, rather than letting Christ lead them to this place where it feels like they're going to be ripped apart on the inside, because it's the only way to be freed from that old man. We have to die to self. But remember, who's leading us here? Why is he leading us? And notice what happens. Even though, even though this is happening, we're not going to fear evil because his rod and staff are there to comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies and anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. In the face of all this opposition, as we are trying to follow Christ, we have an enemy that is trying to, to, to derail us. We may have Job's three friends come to discourage us. We may have family members ridicule us. We may have uh, satanic powers trying to oppress us. I mean, we're going to have enemies trying. But in that, in that place, he's preparing a table before us. A table of what? We've just gone through the symbols of the communion service. We are to partake of Christ every day. We're to eat his flesh and drink his blood, John chapter 6. We're to partake of Jesus Christ, which will nurture us and strengthen us in the face of our enemies. And he anoints our head... With oil, this is our forehead. This is where we reason and think. This is where character develops. And the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. He pours his spirit into our hearts, which empowers, ennobles, regenerates, recreates, cleanses, brings peace, enlightens. And then our hearts overflow. It says our cup overflows. Then our hearts are filled with God's love. He pours his love into our hearts. As we're being renewed and recreated, our heart begins to overflow. And we, instead of living in fear, we begin, begin bringing forth peaceable fruits of righteousness, giving to others, ministering to others, sharing to others what Christ has done for us. And then surely goodness and mercy and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this taps right into our lesson from last week, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We are living stones being built into a house for God. He is polishing the rough places out of our character, preparing us for that eternal abode in heaven where it says in Revelations, you will be a pillar in the temple of God and you will never leave it. We will abide in his house forever. Yeah. Some other manuscripts say, I will return to his house forever. I like it too. Returning back to the house of God. Being living stones built together on the foundation of the apostles with Christ, the chief cornerstone. Yes. The table is set in the valley. Yeah, the table set in the valley. You can't partake the table unless you go in the valley. I like it. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. But there's even more symbols to go for in our, in our lesson today. In the next paragraph, Monday's lesson, it says, but there's a deeper issue here than just where and when we go. 
The existence of the cloud by day and the fire by night was also a very powerful reminder to them of God's abiding presence. According to Numbers 9.16, so it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. No matter where they were, what trials they would face, what foes they would meet, there, hovering in the sky, was a visible marker of God's presence among them. So let's talk some more about this. What is symbolically being taught by this whole thing? The whole Jewish economy, what's being taught? Were the Jewish nation God's chosen people? Yes. Chosen for what? Show his character. Exclusive salvation? No. No. To witness. Okay. They were to be his evangelists, as you say, to tell the Lord, to, to prepare the world for the advent of the first, the first coming of the Messiah, right? To show what God is like. To show what God is like. Okay. And what method did God give them to do this? What was the methodology God gave them to carry out this plan of revealing the world? This is so cool. It's a play. It's a theater. It's a grand play. You see, there is this great stage that they've got. They've got Jewish people as the actors. God is the producer. Moses is the director. They've got this really neat script. They've got all these really neat costumes and intricate props. Is this not a grand play? Did the system itself that they carried out intricately with great detail have any power to save a soul? No. No. There was no saving merit in all those rituals that they did. The saving merit is in Jesus Christ. So this was just an enactment, a carrying out of God's plan of salvation to teach a lesson by acting it out, yes? Can we identify some of the players then and discover what is being taught in this play? You see, what happened to the Jews is they forgot it was a play. They started taking it literal, thought the actual act, the symbols, actually had merit to save. So let's look at some of the players. First, we have to remember that there are two general things being taught by this system. One is God's plan to save the world and restore the, the human race to unity and oneness with God and the rest of the universe, to bring an end to sin. That's taught in the system. But it's also taught God's plan to heal the individual soul. Both are being taught in the system. So who did the high priest represent? Was the high priest in the old system, Aaron, was he Christ or just a symbol of Christ? Symbol of Christ. The sacrificial animal represented Christ. Who was the only one allowed to go into the most holy place and only once a year? Then how come Moses went in all the time after Aaron was high priest to talk to God face to face? Who's the high priest? Aaron. But Moses goes in all the time, talks to him face to face, right? He was yeah, he did. The, the, the tent of meeting was outside the camp. The tent of meeting? The tent of meeting where he met with God was outside the camp. Hmm. Is, I'll have to check that. I thought the tent of meeting was the sanctuary. The tent of meeting was outside the camp. That would be interesting. It would only prove my, what I'm about to say even more, though. It supports what I'm about to say. But I'm going to double-check that. Anybody else know that? Yeah. It is, Mary did go into the tent of meeting, and she wouldn't have been able to go into the sanctuary. Look, look at the concordance. And, uh, no, but that, that's, it, only, it only supports what I'm about to say anyway, because what I'm about to say is that Moses represented Christ before his incarnation, who would go into God's presence to discuss the plan of salvation and how implemented. The Lamb represented Christ during his incarnation, and Aaron represented Christ after his ascension and resurrection, resurrection and ascension. 
And so this is why you see Moses talking to God face-to-face all the time, because prior to his incarnation, Christ is always talking to God face-to-face on the plan of salvation, what they're going to achieve. So you see these three elements here. So, you know, I, I like that. In fact, it might even work better for that to be the case. So I'm going to double-check that. That's good. Thank you. Who did the children of Israel represent? Us. When you say us, what do you mean by us? So the church. Christians, believers, the world. Okay, the world. So the children of Israel represent the peoples of the world. That's exactly right. Who did the Levites, Levites represent? The church. The church. So the Levites represent the church. The other tribes represent the people of the world. This really gets cool. Let's go through some evidence for this. This is out of Numbers 1, 47 through 50. It says, The families of the tribe of Levi, however, were not counted among the others in the census. The Lord said to Moses, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census with the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle and the testimony over all its furnishings and everything everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and camp about it. And then in Numbers 3, 11 to 13, the Lord said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israels in place of the firstborn male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down the firstborn of Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn of Israel, whether man or animal, they are to be mine, I am the Lord. So we have here initially that the Levites were taken apart by God to be his to care for the tabernacle. And likewise, the Christians are set apart from the world taken to God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, to be uh, bought with a price, become special to the Lord. This is out of Numbers 8, 5 through 7. The Lord said to Moses, take the Levites from among the other Israelites and make them ceremonially clean. To purify them, do this, sprinkle the water of cleansing on them and have them shave their whole body and wash their clothes and purify themselves. And as the Levites were washed and made clean, so too the Christian is washed and renewed by the washing of the Holy Spirit and the Lord. Yes, Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteousness, righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus our Savior. And then Levi, the word actual name means joined unto. That's what Levi means, joined unto. And the Levites were given to Aaron. This is out of Numbers eight nineteen. Of all the Israelites, I have given the Levites as gifts to Aaron and his sons to do the work at the tent of meeting uh, in behalf of all Israel and to make atonement for them so that no plague will strike the Israelites. And just as the Levites were joined to Aaron, Aaron represents who? The Levites represent Christians. So then if the Levites represent Christians are joined to Aaron the high priest, what is being taught? Who is the bride of Christ? And the bride of Christ is joined to Christ. This was being taught here. So you see the same symbolism being taught. What does it mean that the Levites make an atonement in behalf of Israel? What does that mean? Well, look at how they camped. And I've drawn this up here on the, on the board. This is, this is the sanctuary in the center of the camp. And you have three, three of the tribes on each of the four sides. In the front to the east was Judah, who was the king. The king will come from the tribe of Judah. Okay? And then it was the camp of Judah, with the other two, Issachar and Zebulun, camped there. And then you had Reuben, Gad, and Simeon to the south, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin to the west, and Dan, Asher, and Naphtali to the, to the north. And 
Have you ever wondered if there were 12 tribes and Levi was, and you notice Levi camps in the inner circle in between every one of the other camps and the sanctuary. This is how they set up camp. Levi was camped between all the people and the sanctuary. Do you notice there's 13 tribes instead of 12? The reason for that is Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons. And Jacob took Ephraim and Manasseh as adopted sons. And so Joseph's two sons both became tribes of, of Israel. And so that's why you see these two tribes here. And so that then made the 13th tribe Levi. And Levi is the priest of God. Now, what do you think is being taught by this layout? What stands between all the other tribes and the sanctuary? Jesus. Levi. And what was their purpose? What was their mission? What was Levi to be doing? What were the Levites to do for the people? And you read this through all the Old Testament times. It, when, when they came out of captivity and they were going to rebuild the sanctuary, what were the Levites doing? They were reading the word to the people. They were translating it. They were teaching the people as they came out of 70 years of captivity God's word. This is what the Levites were doing. The Levites were to lead the people to the sanctuary. They couldn't come to the sanctuary except through the Levites. And Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so send I you. We are his eyes. We are his witnesses. And the priests, which were part of the Levites, and and the daily ministration in the sanctuary, they would take the blood. The blood is symbolic of the life and truth of Christ. And they would minister it everywhere. We are to be taking the blood, the truth of Christ, to minister it to people. That is our job. And so this is set up to teach that the, that, that the church is God's instrument to reach the world, to bring the world back into unity with him. It's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. Exodus 33, 7. Uh, talks about the tent being outside the camp. Let me write that down. Thank you. Exodus 33, 7. Now, what do you think this means? We're going to continue to press this metaphor because I want you to see the lessons that God is trying to teach. Deuteronomy 10, 9, it says... The Levites have no share or inheritance among the brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. In Numbers 18.20, uh, the Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among the people. I am your share and your inheritance among Israel. So, remember, the rest of the tribes, when they got to the promised land, got land. Remember, they inherited land. And that land was passed down through the tribes. The Levites got none. What do you think is being taught? This is not just historic. What does it mean for you here today if you are part of the body of Christ, if you're part of the bride of Christ, if you're, if you're one of his messengers, if you're one of these, these Levites today to teach the world, what does it mean about your inheritance? It's in heaven. You see, the people of the world, what are they focused on getting? They're wanting bigger portfolios. They're wanting a bit more property. Look at the greed that is consuming the world today. They're wanting more and more and more of earthly attainment, earthly recognition, earthly wealth, earthly acknowledgement, Nobel Peace Prizes, you know. Um. (laughs) But our inheritance isn't here, is it? Our inheritance is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, the Bible tells us. And we are ambassadors, and this is not our home. Our home is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. It says, now, everyone that left Egypt did not enter the promised land, did they? Why not? Why didn't they all enter? What happened? They died in God. They died in the wilderness. Why did they die in the wilderness? They doubted. Remember, they sent spies in, 12 spies. How many of the spies were from Levi? None. None. No spies came from Levi. Notice that. 
Think of the meaning of that. Let that circle in your mind. No spies were from Levi. When they came back and they got the discouraging report, how many reported discouraging things? Except Caleb and Joshua. So uh, they said, better would it be that we die in Egypt and go and face these giants and awful people. There. And so the Lord said, fine. That's what you want. I'll give it to you. We're going to go back, turn back, 40 years, wander now in the wilderness. And, and there was a pronouncement. It says, Numbers 14, 29, and 30. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore and uplifted with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua, son of Nun. Okay? So who, who were the only ones that were 20 years of age and older to enter the promised land? Some people said Caleb and Joshua. This is where you read carefully. Who did it say would fall in the wilderness? Those that grown at 20 years and old who were counted in the census. The Levites weren't counted in the census. The Levites never went to war. Says in Numbers one twenty, here's the census. Here's how you take it. all men twenty years and older, or more, who were able to serve in the army were listed in the census. And you actually go down, and it will tell you the list from all the tribes, except Levi that we read earlier. Levi was excluded from the census. And in fact, when they took a separate census later, Levi, they didn't count the Levite males from twenty years and older up. They counted the Levites males from one month of age and up. In other words, the new birth. The Christians are counted as soon as they're born into Christ. You don't have to be all the way mature to be counted. You only have to be reborn into Christ and still be that infant Christian. You're counted. You see? And and we don't fight the earthly battle. So what is being taught here? And by the way, other evidence, Eliezer was son of Aaron. Phineas was son of Eliezer. And both of these guys went into the promised land. Yes? I was going to say, Numbers 147 says the families of the tribe of Levi, however, were not counted with the others. Exactly. Not counted. Have you ever realized that? It was not just Caleb and Joshua. It was all the Levites, 20 years and older. Now, they, some of them might have died of old age, but it wasn't dependent on them. We have Phineas, we have Eliezer, that both were alive at the time of the rebellion, and both went in. So what is being taught here? Think through the message. Who do the people of Israel, the tribes other than Levi, who do they represent? The world, who the Levites represent. When the message came back, was the message from God or was the message that came back from the ten not from God? Was it Satan's lie? You can't, you can't, you can't win. They're too big. The, the problems are too overwhelming. We'll get killed. Was this a message from God or is it Satan's lie to the people? Right. Did they believe Satan's lie? Yes. So what's being taught? That here as we approach the end of time, Satan's got more lies. Those who believe the lies, they get discouraged and turned back. They don't enter the promised land. They die in the wilderness of this world. But the Levites, the Levites, God's chosen, counted from birth on up. They don't believe the lies of the devil. They're not discouraged and they enter their promised land, our eternal promised land. We don't die in the wilderness of this world. Thoughts about the meaning of all this? Isn't it powerful? You're saying that the Levites didn't die because they were counted from birth, but does that mean that Christians never turn back? I'm not saying that Christians don't have the freedom to turn back, and some might turn back. Uh, if we look at the story of Nadab and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu were priests, sons of Aaron, tribe of Levi. What did they do? They rebelled, took unauthorized fire before the Lord, and fire came out from before him and consumed them. They clearly didn't go into the promised land. 
So yes, people in the church can turn against God, and if they do, they, they won't be counted with that, with that righteous number. There's just so many questions, I don't even know where to begin. But, you know, this whole idea of being counted, and then I guess assumptions made on my part, or maybe they're not that assuming, but it seems like Christians have to be, you know, Christ-like, reflect Christ's character, which would... That's exactly right. I guess I'm getting lost in the whole idea of being counted at birth and making it to the promised land. The, the interim part is where I'm getting. I guess the metaphor I like is, let's say you have bilateral pneumonia and you're dying with fever. Fever's 105, 106 degrees. If some intervention isn't done, you're going to die. You go to the doctor and he diagnoses you and you trust your doctor. He gives you an antibiotic which will cure you. You have accepted his treatment plan, you're going to follow what he says, and you take your first dose of antibiotic. The day, the moment you take your first dose, have you left the path that leads to death, and are you a new path now that leads to life? Are you well that day? No. As long as you stay on the path, and you trust your doctor, and you continue to take your antibiotics, is the outcome guaranteed? Basically, with our metaphor. Yes, that's the Christian journey. As soon as you accept him, the outcome of what Christ will do. This is what it means in, in, in Romans when it says, by faith, Abraham was recognized to be or accounted righteous. See, as soon as he trusted God, he wasn't perfect yet. There was a journey of Abraham's life. Remember, he lied about Sarah even after he trusted God. In other words, he wasn't well yet. Just like when you take the antibiotics and you're on that journey to wellness, there's still a lot of fever and cough coming. And even once you take the antibiotics, um, if you've ever had pneumonia, the antibiotics start breaking loose the infection. And guess what? more crud starts coming up than before you started the antibiotics. Now, this, is the more crud coming up uh, evidence that you're getting worse? No. no. When we come to Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to work in our life, things come to our awareness. We become aware and we recognize more and more defects of character. And it can appear like we're getting worse. We're not getting worse. The Holy Spirit is bringing up the crud in our hearts that was always there that we didn't even have awareness of so that it can be brought before Him and worked out of the character. And as long as we stay on this path, the outcome is guaranteed because the work of the Holy Spirit will eventually transform us into his likeness. The older we are, the healthier we get, the more mature we get. The problem is when we have this other metaphor that says, well, once you've accepted the payment, then you're saved, and then you stay a spiritual infant and you never grow up. But as long as you're on that path, you're on the path of life and the outcome is sure. But do we want to stay as infants? If you were sick and you say, well, I've started my antibiotics and I'm going to get well, do you want to just put that off as long as you can? Or do you want to get well as quickly as you can? And we have these ideas in Christianity that are taught that, that, well, you never get victory over sin in your life. You just accept the payment. You're legally stamped pardon. You continue to sin right up to the day Christ comes. You never get, really get well. Well, you know, you take your antibiotics. You never actually get free from that pneumonia. You keep, keep fevers and cough forever and ever. It's really nonsense, yeah. Uh, do you think there's a reason that it was at one month rather than at birth? You know, I don't know. I haven't thought through the reason why it might be one month other than birth, other than there was a high mortality rate, um, and, and a lot of mortality rate in the, in the wilderness, maybe, and in the desert, and in the low sanitary environment that they had, and all the other things going on, that, uh, that maybe there was a high infant mortality rate at the time, and didn't want the metaphor to suggest that, hey, all these, all these babes in Christ are going to die, and so maybe waits for a month where they're going to have high survival rate. Did that help answer the question? Yeah, what? Where does the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death fit into that? How are we supposed to come to a point of complete surrender? The valley of the shadow of death would be, for most of us, uh, I don't know, you know, it can be the point of conversion, it can actually be after the point of conversion. Sometimes we come to trust God and we start to follow Him, but we yet haven't surrendered all to Him. Is that not true? 
but then maybe we're not yet converted. I would suggest the valley of shadow death is the real conversion process. Remember, Peter walked with Christ for three and a half years. Peter walked with him three and a half years, performed miracles, clearly loved his, his Savior. But the night before the betrayal, Jesus said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. So three and a half years walking with Christ, loving Christ, he still yet wasn't converted. Now, what was the conversion? Now, when, G- when Peter said to Jesus, hey, even if everyone else denies you, I, I won't do it. I'd give my life for you. Was Peter purposely and knowingly lying to Christ, or did Peter actually genuinely mean what he said at the moment? He meant it. He was being honest as far as he knew himself, but he yet wasn't converted. So here's the deal. Bottom line, rubber road. Peter loved Christ, yes? But he loved himself more. Thus, when the pressure came on his own life, he denied Christ to save himself. And conversion was when he finally went through that valley and died. That was that horrible wrestling night. That was his valley of the shadow of death that night. And then he came out the other side, a man who was dead to self. And he, he wasn't perfect yet. He still had some, he still had some, some skull, what do you call it, theological misunderstandings that Paul had to correct him on. But he wasn't willing to put himself before Christ anymore. And he was willing to be corrected and grow. And that was the real key, coming to that point where we, we die to, to our own self. Yeah. And then as they went into march, this, this tribe, you see, they, they would march in the same order that they camped. Judah would lead, followed by the other two here, and then Reuben. And then in the middle, after the first six tribes, the sanctuary and the Levites would go right in the middle. And then the last six, tri- six tribes would follow behind with Dan, which means judge, coming up last, his tribe coming up last. And that's how they would march. Another lesson being taught that we were to be in the world, but not of the world. Okay, We're in the world and not of the world. And interestingly enough, who was... Who was actually leading in front of Judah? The cloud. And so Christ is leading the entire world, trying to. Did everyone in the, in the column of, of Israel actually recognize and follow the leadership of the cloud? Or was there rebellion constantly? Okay, Korah, Dath, and Abiram. I mean, we, we've got all the list of the rebellions, okay? So God is leading the world. But many in the world are rebelling against his leadership. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he's trying to lead the whole world back into the heavenly promised land. But my, many in the world are, are rebelling against it. And we, the Levites of believers, the priesthood of believers, are to be in the world to help convince them to trust the one who's leading. Now, in Tuesday's lesson is about the trumpets and about the silver trumpets. There were two silver trumpets. And when they would blow, they would blow for different purposes. Blow one trumpet, you call the leaders, blow true Two trumpets you blow, you call the whole assembly. The trumpets would blow to signal the camp to move. The trumpets would blow in time of an enemy invading uh, the camp to, to call the Lord to their deliverance. And they would blow for all the festivals. And symbols of the trumpets, the only people who could blow the trumpets were the Levites and the priests. That's it. What does that symbolize? Why were they the only ones who could blow the trumpets? It's in, in symbolic memories. It's a the theater. It's trying to act out something. The silver trumpets. In Revelation, are there trumpets that are going to blow? Do we believe that there's a loud trumpet that is to, to blow at the end of time? What is that loud trumpet? It is a message. It is a message of truth that is to call the world to attention. Who are the ones who are going to blow that trumpet? It's the church. It's the Levites, the priesthood of believers. Those who knows God are going to call the world with a message that says, wake up, wake up and recognize the truth and turn back, come back. Assembly being called back to unity with God. That's our message at this time in history. We're to be blowing that trumpet. Did you like the symbolism stuff? 
Yeah, there's a lot more there. I mean, so much more. It goes so deep, uh, so deep that we didn't have time to go into it today. But uh, maybe you guys can study some more of that out on your own. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible detail to give such a cool script to the people in the Old Testament to act out this play, to teach us something about your plan to reach us and save us and restore us. May we move past the symbols to the reality of your kingdom of love and the truth about Jesus Christ. And may we partake of of the living bread from heaven that our hearts and minds will be freed from the distortions and lies. That we can see the universe as you see the universe to operate on true love and not be caught up into the principles of this world that our inheritance and our treasure can be in heaven. We pray in your holy name. Amen.